welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, Mother Jones Radio, The Young Turks, and Rachel Maddow. Now, the Delay Political Death Watch. Yeah, Tom Delay, at it again. Laying out his Democrats are weak on terror meme. Count how many lies Tom DeLay's just strung together in this one 32-second piece. I mean, just this, this is just absolutely incredible. Here, here we go. Let's start out. They don't want to fight this war on terrorism. If they did... Now, okay, first of all, they, he's talking about the Democrats. They don't want to fight this war on terrorism. Now, that assumes, first of all, that there is a war on terrorism. Okay, and which not, we can there's 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 there are so there are some criminals out there who have attacked the United States. Bill Clinton went after them. There are criminals in the United States who have attacked the United States. Bill Clinton went after them. Tim McVeigh put him in prison. We have gone after people who have used terror tactics against the United States. But you know we, the war on drugs, the war on illiteracy, the war on terror, all these all these phony wars. Come on. Let's deal with some real issues here, rather than this 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 nonsense rhetoric that that well okay so there's we'll start with that. Bill Clinton would have led us into the war on terrorism and and against uh, uh, Islamic fanatics. Okay, uh, lie number two. Bill Clinton would have led us against Islamic fanatics. Bill Clinton tried to assassinate Osama bin Laden. I I had a conversation with Sandy Berger, the uh, Clinton's national security advisor, who had the job that Condi Rice had when she first came into the White House, and he told me personally that when he handed off his job to Condoleezza Rice, that he told her that her number one priority was Osama bin Laden, because within the next year, in all probability, Osama bin Laden was going to strike somewhere in the United States. They had already foiled several plots, including one guy coming in from, from uh, Vancouver, Canada. Uh, they, had, they, and they had tried to assassinate Osama bin Laden. They, they missed him by, by 30 minutes with a missile. Uh, one time they, they tried to shoot him with missiles in, uh, in Somalia, and the Republicans were on the floor of the House going, oh, he's trying to wag the Monica. And, uh, you know, and, and he still continued to try and take out bin Laden. Another time he had him in, the, had him in their sights, and, and they, they said, shoot him. And they discovered that he was sitting with a bunch of members of the royal family of, of Oman and, and, uh, and the, the, the United Arab Emirates, I guess it was. And, and uh, they had to say, oh, we'll, we'll hold off. But they knew he was there. They knew he was a problem. They knew he was plotting against us, and they were doing everything they could to take him out and everything they could to find it. And, and so, and, and Al Gore's comment to Bill, to uh, Dick Cheney as he as he handed over power was get bin Laden. Dick Cheney was put in charge of the counterterrorism task force. He had two jobs, counterterrorism terrorism task force and energy task force. He spent all his time meeting behind closed doors, so closed that he went to the Supreme Court to keep it a secret from us with the with the energy task force with Ken Lay and all his buddies figuring out how many billions of your and my taxpayer dollars we were going to give to the oil companies this year, which they just did with their oil bill and how to screw California and get Gray Davis out of office. And and a Republican into office, they spent so much time on that that the counterterrorism task force that Dick Cheney headed up didn't even meet until September of 2000, uh, 2001. Didn't even meet. 
So here, that would lie number two from Tom DeLay, that Bill Clinton did nothing about terrorism or about Islamic radicals who were coming after us. Not only did he go after the Islamic radicals, he also went after the Christian radicals. Tim McVeigh, who blew up the Oklahoma, the Murray building, McMurray building in Oklahoma City, thinking that that was going to bring about the end times. Uh, their, their worldview is, can't we all get along? No, no, that was, as if you'll recall, the clips we played yesterday, that was Eisenhower's worldview. It was, and well, it was Jack Kennedy, I guess, who also said we should never negotiate from fear and we should never fear to negotiate. So, yeah, I guess you could say actually our worldview, the Democratic uh, worldview here, is, is not so much can't we all get along, but we're willing to talk to people and try and work things out before we start throwing bombs. Because when you just go in and kill 100,000 civilians like we did in Iraq, it really doesn't do much good. It costs a bloody fortune. It, it angers them terribly, and it, it, you're just inciting terrorism all over the planet. Delay continues with his... Now, now he's going to do the straw man thing. This is where you now characterize your opponent as something that they're not, and then attack them for being what they're not in the first place. And he's going to try and say that Democrats are the stereotype of, of some person who is, abs- of, you know, of the 98-pound weakling, basically. basically you know, the, 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 the Republican version of this. Somebody who's just afraid of conflict altogether. Uh, surely that we can talk our way out of this. Uh, and we're, and th- so when we are attacked, their first reaction is, is to recoil. No, I don't think so. I think that when we're attacked, the first reaction that the Democrats had in the United States. Well, for example, when we were attacked, when the first time the World Trade Center was attacked, Bill Clinton said, we're going to get those SOBs, and he got them. You know, the, the shake is, the blind shake is sitting rotting in a jail cell right now. The guys, the guys who put together the first attack on 9-11, on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the World Trade Center, they're in jail, thanks to Bill Clinton. Sorry, it wasn't, hey, let's, let's see, can't we work this out? No, it was, we're going to go after you, we're going to throw your butt in jail. Is Osama bin Laden's butt in jail? No, I don't think so. Somehow it uh, just doesn't seem to be the case, does it? That uh, we uh, haven't found him. Uh... So I, I don't know where he is. Nor do, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. Can really be honest with you? Again, I don't know where he is. I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I repeat what I said. I truly am not that concerned about him. Yeah, so, uh, okay, what, what do we have to lie? Number five, delay continues. And say, oh, this is really horrible, it's too harsh, and, and you can't go after these wonderful people. These wonderful people, yeah, you can't go. See, he's creating this phony straw man. That uh, just killed a bunch of uh, Americans. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? And, and, and this is being played all over the media, like uh, Tom DeLay's words of wisdom for the day. Give me a break. And then on top of that... We've got we've got Bush going off on Islamic fascism. I mean, you've got to just consider this for a moment. Here's George W. Bush. I think. Hang on just a second. This nation is at war with Islamic fascists. Now, first of all, fascism is the merger of corporate and state interests. You know, the word was invented by by Benito Mussolini, and Mussolini and Franco were the real fascists. Hitler had some fascism, but, you know, people think that fascism is Nazism. Sorry, Nazism was a, was a sick, twisted cult, death cult. And that's what was running Germany. And that's what Hitler was. He was not a true fascist. Mussolini was the fascist. Franco was the fascist. 
because they merged corporate and state, and state interests. In fact, in Italy, Mussolini dissolved the parliament and replaced the elected members of parliament with corporate representatives. In other words, if you lived in Verona, the biggest corporation in Verona, they sent their representative to be to represent you in Parliament. If you lived in Venezia, in Venice, the, the largest corporation there, they sent their person to, to Parliament to represent you. you. The people of Italy in the Italian Parliament in the 1930s, after Mussolini dissolved Parliament and put into, into place fascism, the people in the various districts around the country were represented by, the, by their local corporation. That's fascism. That's the kind of thing that Bush is trying to do. So why is he using the word fascism? Well, because he doesn't want to use the real word of what bin Laden is all about, which is theocracy. Because Bush wants to do the same thing. We've got the uh, theocrats battling theocrats. So Bush is accusing, bin, uh, not bin Laden specifically, he's accusing Muslims, first of all, broadly speaking, which is a terrible thing. Islam is not a religion of violence, I'm sorry. But certainly there's violence within it, just as there has been historically within Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism. I think Buddhism is the, probably the only major world religion that has never you know, gone to war in the name of Buddha. But Bush talking about this, he's trying to get this meme out of fascism so that we won't be able to point out who he is and what he's really doing. And so that nobody will be talking about Islamic theocracy. Theocracy is a government run by people who believe that they're doing God's will, and the government is being run according to the word of God from some revealed religion. That's a theocracy. And that is, in fact, what the Taliban was all about. That is what Mullah Omar was all about. That is what Osama bin Laden was all about. That is what uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, all of these guys, they're about theocracy. And oddly enough, that's also what George Bush is all about. He just wants a Christian theocracy here. Over, he couldn't get it through Congress. Congress wouldn't give a billion dollars to his friends in the churches in the election year 2004, even though it was a Republican Congress. So he just did it himself with a stroke of a pen. He created his faith-based initiative program and gave $1,000 million dollars to churches in the United States, just, just in time for the 2004 election, a billion dollars. Much of it going to black churches, which, which uh, doubled, literally doubled their percentage of voters for, the, for, for Bush in the 2004 election. Theocracy, that's what's going on. It's Islamic theocracy that is coming after us. Bush continues. Who will use any means to, to destroy those of us who love freedom. No, it's got nothing to do with freedom, George. It's got nothing to do with freedom. It's got to do with, with uh, their perception that we're draining their oil, that we're going after them for the wrong reasons, that we're bombing. That we're, that, that, it's, it's because you've got this General Boinkin out there running around going, our God is bigger than their God. And you promoted him rather than fired him.
Have we learned anything from non-existent weapons of mass destruction and fantasy threats of mushroom clouds terrorizing the American public? That faulty, cherry-picked intelligence led the U.S. to invade Iraq. And a story so similar that it's creepy is detailed in the current Mother Jones magazine. This time, the allegedly ripe target is Iran. Three Days in Rome is the story in the July-August issue of Mother Jones magazine. Joining me on the line now is the author of that story, Laura Rosen. She's also senior correspondent for American Prospect magazine. Laura, thanks for making time to join us. Thank you. As we read through the story of what happened in Rome in December of 2001, there's a name that pops up, and for any student of American history, they say, wait a minute, I've heard of this guy before. Back to the Iran-Contra days, who have we got figuring in this story? Well, the Iranian arms dealer in the story is Manucher Gorbanifar, a colorful um, Iranian arms dealer based in the south of France who has reactivated his relationship with American officials following September 11th. And for anyone who followed the Iran-Contra story, we're hearing of this character who apparently fed intelligence to the U.S., was found to be something of a fraud, yet all of a sudden he's back in a pivotal role about what's happening in the Middle East? He's back not in a stable role. What he tried to do is reactivate his relationship with Rumsfeld's Pentagon. Um, The CIA still refuses to work with him. And so what this is really a story about is some Pentagon Iran hawks trying to make an end run around the CIA to get Gorbanifar's intelligence information back into U.S. intelligence channels. So the situation in Rome that day, these people came together with the assistance of Italian intelligence, and we have Gorbanifar, we have two people with Pentagon uh, appointments who are very, very uh, tightly in with the Iran hawks. And the people that are not present, who perhaps should have been, were the CIA and the U.S. Embassy. Why are they not there? Well, that's one of the interesting things that my story tries to deal with. You know, the CIA and State Department have complained that they were not notified properly about this meeting and, you know, essentially that they were shut out. But if you really talk to people from CIA, which I did do, they also made it clear that they didn't want to be there had they known about it because they felt like this could be Iran-Contra all over again. And one CIA official told me that, you know, we know a lot of people who went over the cliff with those guys the first time around, and we wanted no part of it. So, you know, it was push-pull. They didn't want to be there, and, um, and the Pentagon officials didn't want them there either. So what were these guys getting together to do? Well, the Pentagon officials and Michael Ledeen, another person who was in the Reagan administration who now is a private citizen and um, prominent neoconservative thinker and writer, um, they say that Gorbanifar had an intelligence tip to help U.S. forces in Afghanistan. The implication is that Gorbanifar knew of an Iranian terror threat to U.S. forces in Afghanistan and that he was, you know, sharing that intelligence with his American friends. But my, my reporting suggested that that was not the only thing that this three-day meeting was about. In fact, there's an old motif that comes again and again, which is that the Pentagon hawks and their supporters want to believe, and Gorbanifar provides them information to believe, that Iran is basically on the verge of a coup, that there is disloyalty and, and discontent within the ranks of the Iranian security services, and that if the Americans would put Gorbanifar on the payroll, that the figure mentioned is 20 million, um, but essentially they could, they could overturn the regime through coup, you know, not, not, with, not with an invasion of the 82nd Airborne, but through cultivating um, people in the Revolutionary Guard Corps who'd be willing to switch sides. 
And for people who weren't around for Iran-Contra, tell us what the parallel is here. Well, Iran-Contra um, was Gorbani Farr representing the Iranian regime coming to the Reagan administration through ultimately Michael Ledeen, convincing the Reagan administration to secretly sell sophisticated missiles and weapons to the mullahs, to the Iranian mullahs, in order to get the uh, American hostages held by the terrorist group Hezbollah uh, released. And so, I mean, the, the parallels have become even more interesting the past few weeks with the conflict in Lebanon because, you know, Hezbollah is essentially at war with Israel. And there's a lot of questions among the, you know, in the American policy circles about how much is this a proxy war for the U.S. and Iran. Well, in fact, and there's another parallel with the start of the Iraq War, where you see what Ahmed Chalabi, uh, you know, representing this banged-up used car to the United States, and they bought the whole lemon. And it looks as though they're on the verge of doing exactly the same thing, buying a lemon of fraudulent information from a proven crook. Is am I overstating that? You know, I think that some of these people actually think that Gorbanifar is genuine and that they think that the U.S. intelligence community um, actually makes an effort to shut out information from Iran that would imply a more aggressive U.S. posture. They have an appetite, it's clear, for the type of intelligence Gorbanifar is providing. But they also have a real complaint that the CIA and the State Department um, are trying to promote a more moderate U.S. policy towards Iran, one that involves negotiating with these people they consider evil. So Ledeen and the Pentagon hawks do think that Chalabi was a sincere broker. Um, you know, they still haven't disowned his information. So. Yeah, I guess there are some parallels there. The difference is that Ledeen and the, and the Pentagon Hawks, you know, insist that they are not calling for U.S. military intervention in Iran. They think that there could be a soft, velvet revolution that U.S. governmental support could nurture, that it doesn't have to be, you know, at the end of the stick, so to speak. Another week away, my greatest fear. I need the smell of summer, I need its noises in my ear Looks can really kill, then my profession would be staring No, we do this cause we care, not for the thrill Collect calls to home, tell them that I realize That everyone who lives will someday die and die All right, we're going to pull that up for you in a second. He's uh, talking to Chertoff, our Department of Homeland Security uh, chief, and he's talking about how uh, they uh, foiled his bombings in London and how that might have to do with the illegal warrantless wiretapping program, except it doesn't. <laughs> All right, we're ready now. Here's O'Reilly. The fact that the NSA was able to intercept some of these phone calls that were made in the United States to Al-Qaeda in Britain by using the very controversial, although I understand warrants were obtained for this by the FISA court, is that a, in your opinion, does that mean that the Bush administration is uh, justified now in its original policy? Is this a big win politically for you guys? Dude, that's so, just straight out comical. And, and what Chir did Chertoff say, though? Chertoff said, I'm not going to talk about things. Uh, I'm not going to talk about operational things at all. He said, obviously, this is a very serious day and a sobering day for America. We need to do all we can to stop right. it. He didn't even give that ridiculous an answer. First of all, you can't ask Chertoff that question as if you're going to, as if Chertoff was opposed to it. 
and now this will get him to turn around. So that's the first. I mean, you're asking a guy who supported the program throughout, does he still support the program? Chertoff would be like, yeah, yeah, that, why would that change? But that question, I love it. He's like, does this v- validate, justify the Bush's program for warrantless wiretapping, yeah. even though in this case they got warrants? <laughs> Our point is to keep the program and get the warrants. So you notice how he kind of, he literally almost said it under his breath. He's like, but I mean. Yeah, right. Because I, I actually couldn't Even hear if he had said. Like, I, I took me a second to hear if he actually said, it appears they did get warrants or didn't because he mumbled it so quickly. No, they did get warrants. And so, yeah, so it appears, I mean, they, I guess they got warrants. But so anyways, that's not the point. The point is that you got a warrant and it works. Follow the law. Have checks and balances. Have the judicial branch. Keep an eye on the executive branch so we don't get power run amok. It works. They work together. They stop terrorism. We uphold the law. We protect ourselves from having a runaway executive branch, which is what every single uh, founding father wanted and what every single constitutional scholar and every single person who cares about this country has thought in the 230 years since the idea first came up. Now, why do you think he said that, did that in that little segment? I mean, why would, I, I mean, we wouldn't do it. I, I mean, just as a matter of if it was something that we cared about, we wouldn't say, although what we care about is wrong, tell us how it's right. You know, it doesn't, it's not logical, right? Yeah, but that's well, what's brilliant about them. No, no, and that's, that's what it is. The thing is, he thinks his audience isn't even paying attention to what he's saying. Yeah, they, don't, he doesn't, they don't care. They don't care. All he wants to do is have a conversation about how the warrantless wiretapping thing worked. Right. And by the way, the Fox News... And, and, and opposing it makes you weak. And, and if you oppose it, his argument there is oppose it and a bunch of Pakistanis from Great Britain get on a plane and blow them up in America if you oppose warrantless wiretapping. They think it doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what logic dictates. It doesn't matter what we even say on air. All that's important is for us, and O'Reilly was not the only one. For nearly a week, all the Fox News Channel guys have been talking about the NSA warrantless wiretapping program. The only thing that's important is that we keep talking about this, so it seems like it's making you safe. And whether there's a war on Christmas or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the facts uh, uh, back that up. All that's important is that we keep talking about a war on Christmas. Christmas, so you believe there is a war on Christmas. I mean, just think about the way the average person watches television. It's like we watch these shows and we dissect the clips to find out exactly what they're saying, their motive, and you know what they really mean. Now, when you just sit down at your house and you're on the couch and you turn on Bill O'Reilly, you're zoning in, you're zoning out, you're kind of paying attention, but you're not watching it like we watch these clips. And so that segment there, the average person hears thwarted plot, warrantless wiretapping, worked, what does Chertoff say about that? And so, exactly. and so it's like, so they've walked away now from that segment thinking, you know what, I guess it's okay if they go through my phone records and internet stuff, and da, da, da. I mean, because we, we thwarted this big terrorism plot. I guess this is the way we have to live now in the United States. Not even hearing and recognizing the fact that they got warrants. They didn't have to do it behind anyone's back. They went through the FISA course. They did everything like they should have. And that's why the plot was thwarted. That's exactly right, Jill. And that's why the average Fox News viewer is far more uneducated right. than the average American. It's ju- but what do I mean by that? That's not a, you know, I'm just throwing it around as an insult. Or, or they, do a, they do surveys and they ask you questions. And the Fox News viewer is a lot more likely to say, for example, that we found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which is not true. 
It's not, that's, they are wrong. They're ignorant. They're uneducated. They have the wrong facts because Fox News Channel has been feeding them the wrong facts. And when they ask him, is Saddam Hussein linked to al-Qaeda? The Fox News Channel viewer is a lot more likely to say yes. The 9-11 Commission and every other thing that's ever looked into it says no. So, But they don't have the facts because Fox News Channel is purposely trying to divert them away from the facts. Now, even if you're a Fox News Channel listener and you love them and you masturbate to them on a nightly basis, we're going to play the clip for you again so you hear it with your own ears. And if you're watching on the website, you can see it with your own eyes. Look at Bill O'Reilly, admit that they got warrants, and then ask about how it's great that you don't have to get warrants. Go ahead, play it again. The fact that the NSA was able to intercept some of these phone calls that were made in the United States to Al-Qaeda in Britain by using the very controversial, although I understand warrants were obtained for this by the FISA court, is that a, in your opinion, does that mean that the Bush administration is uh, justified now in its original policy? Is this a big win politically for you guys? He doesn't even, inter- he doesn't even explain what the original policy was because he can't because the original policy was to not right, exactly. get a warrant but i mean that's the other thing so the majority of people don't even know what the original policy was and 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 you know and, and by and, the way and, and everything that it violated and so they're like no i want i want wiretapping what what's wrong with wiretapping well, well, course, it worked jill that's and jenk that's exactly what they intended throughout and who this whole debate was Hey, I want the. Do you want the NSA spying on terrorists? Do you want us to catch terrorist phone calls or not? Everybody wants us to catch terrorist phone calls. We want you to follow a procedure to do it. Look what happened. You did follow a procedure, uh, and it worked anyway. So it's but, all about misdirect. It's all about misleading. It's all about obfuscating the facts. By the way, there's also uh, in that same poll that I'm talking about, Fox News viewers versus uh, regular Americans. Uh, question about the Kyoto Protocols. The Kyoto Protocols are uh, for the United the whole world working together on environmental regulations. They asked the Fox News Channel people, not whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, they asked the viewers, has the Bush administration signed it? And an overwhelming number say yes. But they have not signed. They have not signed. <laughs> okay. They make it seem like, well, you know, I don't know how they do it thing, with uh, clips like this. And so when if you ask the people that watch Fox News Channel, hey, that uh, policy of monitoring the al-Qaeda terrorists or whatever that the Bush administration is using, do you need a warrant for that? I bet not only would some of them say, oh, you don't need a warrant. It's a good thing. We don't. Uh, we got to get rid of this warrant requirement. But I bet you a lot of them would say, oh, no, no, they do get a warrant. Because yeah. they, because they, which is flat out not true, because they've been purposely misled by people like O'Reilly. Yeah, well, intentionally deceiving America. That's why you get into broadcast. Thanks for all you shown us. This is how we feel. Come sit next to me, pour yourself some tea. This idea of democracy is, is really an 
an ancient one. The idea that democracy doesn't work is an ancient one. And what we're finding is that democracy does work. And, and here's where the, the neocons and the, and the folks in that camp, in my opinion, have it absolutely wrong. They are correct in suggesting that democracy is a good and desirable thing. They're incorrect in believing that you can shove it down people's throats with the barrel of a gun. In fact, the big thing that they're missing is the fact that in order to have a successful democracy, you must have a middle class. It is you, an educated middle class, an informed middle class. You must have a media that works, that, that, that encourages dissent and a wide variety of discussion. You must have people you know, with a wide range of information. And, and you must you, you just, you know, bottom line, you have to have a middle class. Now, these guys have been working for a long, long time to wrest back power in the United States, to take, to take it back from, from we the people, and to create fear. When you go back to 1972... In 1972, on June 1st, 72, Nixon came back from, from the Soviet Union, along with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and he gave a speech in which he said, Last Friday in Moscow, we, be- we witnessed the beginning of the end of that era which began in 1945. Now, he's talking about the Cold War. In 72, Nixon declares the end of the Cold War. He says, with this step, we have enhanced the security of both nations. We have begun to reduce the level of fear. you get this? This was intolerable. Nixon, the president of the United States, talking like this? So Nixon, within a year, is, is out. Right? The, the Watergate scandal brings him down. Jerry Ford comes in. And Jerry Ford's chief of staff and his secretary of defense get together and they say, we've got to change this. We've got to make the people afraid again. You think I'm exaggerating. I, I, I'm absolutely not. Jerry Ford's Secretary of Defense, a guy by the name of Don Rumsfeld, and Jerry Ford's Chief of Staff, a guy by the name of Dick Cheney. We're talking 1974 here. Helped put together this, this, this organization called the Committee for the Present Danger, or the Committee on the Present Danger, to promote the whole idea that there's evil out there waiting to get us. Rumsfeld suggested that the Soviet Union had secret weapons. They had a new submarine that was so secret that we couldn't detect it. Here's a quote. This is, 19, this is a speech he gave in 1976. He said the Soviet Union, as defense secretary, he said the Soviet Union has been busy. They've been busy in terms of their level of effort. They've been busy in terms of the actual weapons they've been producing. They've been busy in terms of expanding production rates. They've been busy in terms of expanding their institutional capacity to produce additional weapons and additional... They've been busy in terms of expanding their capability to improve the sophistication of these weapons. Year after year, they've been demonstrating that they have steadiness of purpose. They're purposeful about what they're doing. Now, the only problem? The CIA disagreed with him. On record, in public, the CIA said that Defense Secretary Rumsfeld's 1976 position was, quote, a complete fiction, end quote. And the CIA said in 1976, the Soviet Union is disintegrating from within and will probably not survive another decade. It wasn't Reagan who brought down the Soviet Union. It was a system that doesn't work. I was there back in the 1980s. I can tell you, it was a system that didn't work. But Rumsfeld and Cheney wanted people to be afraid. They put together this group, a commission. They convinced Jerry Ford to appoint a presidential commission 
headed up by their old friend Paul Wolfowitz. Are these names sounding familiar? This is, again, 1976. This is 2006. What is that, 30 years ago, Tim? Is that, am I doing my math right? Yeah, 30 years ago. It was called Team B. And they came to the conclusion that the, the, new, that the Soviet Union had this nuclear-armed submarine that sonar couldn't detect because it was so sophisticated. The CIA comes out and says, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. And Rumsfeld says, the fact that you can't find it is proof that it exists. It is a weapon of mass destruction. Have you heard this before? The head of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency of the United Nations, Dr. Ann Kahn, in 1977, she said, I quote, talking about Rumsfeld and this, uh, this submarine, this weapon of mass destruction he claimed the Soviets had, which, by the way, we now know they never had. She says, they couldn't say that the Soviets had acoustic means of picking up American submarines because they couldn't find it. So what they said, well, maybe they have non-acoustic means of making our submarine fleet vulnerable. But there was no evidence that they had that either. They're saying, we can't find evidence that they're doing it the way that everyone thinks they're doing it. So they must be doing it in a different way. We don't know what that different way is, but they must be doing it. Even though there's no evidence. Khan, quoting Rumsfeld. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means we haven't found it. And it didn't exist. Soviet Union was, the CIA was correct. The Soviet Union was imploding. And yet Rumsfeld and Cheney helped build a multi-trillion dollar industry. Literally, multi-trillion dollar industry. Devoted to stopping a weapon that didn't exist the Committee on the Present Danger, and it's being, by the way, revived. And they succeeded in creating an atmosphere of fear in the United States. I remember as a kid in the 1950s, I remember my dad talking about, should we, in our basement, we had a serious discussion about whether we should put a false ceiling in and cover it with a foot of dirt so that we'd be safe in case of a nuclear attack. People were building bomb shelters. This is the kind of mentality that people use to control other people because they have this belief, this elite belief, that they're really the only ones who understand how things are. They're really the only ones who know what reality is. They're really the only ones who should be running the country. Show. We do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's right-wing political tactic, I'm not even sure I need to spell it out for you. American people need to know we're 
we live in a dangerous world. Hmm. But our government will do everything we can to protect our people from those dangers. How about the political tactic of stoking fear in a specific, impractical, BS, vague, unaccountable way that's only designed to stoke your own image as a daddy figure who can inexplicably keep us safe? It is a mistake to believe there is no threat to the United States of America. How about making a straw man argument about the other side in the debate? Who actually believes that there's no threat to the United States of America. Is there anybody left in the country who actually thinks that, or is that just a really convenient way to characterize the other side of an argument you're not willing to have in honest terms? This country is safer than it uh, was prior to 9-11. We've taken a lot of measures to protect the American people. How about lying as a political tactic? I want to talk about the terror attacks that were unveiled yesterday that we learned about with those arrests in Britain in practical terms. There's a couple different ways to talk about something scary in the world. You can talk about how afraid you fear, how afraid you feel, and how angry you are at the people who have made you feel afraid. You can also talk about how to protect yourself, about actual safety. What exactly has the Bush administration done since 9-11 to keep Americans safe in a world that hates us more than ever? Have they done anything to keep the liquid explosives off planes that they knew al-Qaeda was plotting to use against us for the last, I don't know, 12 years? Not before yesterday, they didn't. How about taking steps to regulate the chemicals that can make liquid explosives? don't necessarily need to regulate acetone, which is one of the two ingredients they expected to be used in these liquid explosives yesterday. But the other ingredient, concentrated hydrogen peroxide, you can only get that from chemical supply warehouses. Why not regulate that or at least make people show some ID when they buy it? That ever occurred to anybody since they've known about that threat for 12 years? How about regulating safety at chemical plants that could be the target of attacks? How about securing container ships? How about screening cargo? How about just using radiation detectors on all the cargo that comes in? They do that at some other ports in the world. We don't do that in the United States. How about screening cargo on commercial airplanes at all? How about actively patrolling the ports like they do in a lot of countries, but we don't do here? How about locking up loose nuclear material around the world, which we've done less of since 9-11 than we did before 9-11? How about catching Osama bin Laden or Mullah Muhammad Omar or Ayman Zawahri and putting them to work in some popsicle stick art in a prison cell somewhere? How about we work on that? How about we do that instead of disbanding the CIA's bin Laden office? How about we do that instead of diverting the troops from Afghanistan who were looking for those guys and sending them to go fight a get-rich-quick scheme in Iraq instead? How about doing anything in the world to harden ourselves as a target against terrorists? How about building up our military readiness instead of destroying it? How about making our National Guard troops that attend to the states from which they are brought up? How about letting our National Guard troops actually work on readiness, homeland security, and infrastructure issues in their states instead of sending them all to Iraq? How about doing something other than Karen Hughes' Muslim land speaking tour to try to do something about the fact that a worldwide army of young Muslim men is radicalized against us and willing to die trying to hurt us now more than ever? How about recognizing that nothing that has been done since 9-11 in this country has made us more safe as Americans? 
everything that has been done in foreign policy by this Bush administration since 9-11 has made the world a more dangerous place for the citizens of this country. That significant terror attacks around the globe have dramatically risen since 9-11. That the name Osama is increasingly popular for Muslim newborn boys around the world. That bin Ladenism and the threat that it poses has been made worse while we've decided to substitute sending F-16s over unrelated countries, decided to substitute that for any substantive effort to make Americans actually be any safer. How about the American people no longer being willing to settle for fear? This threat is not going away. No matter what George Bush says about people who disagree with him about keeping Americans safe, nobody in this country thinks we are not at threat. This threat is not going away. And impotent fear and this get-rich-quick scheme gone bad that is the war in Iraq are not going to make us safe. It's time to kick this government out of office and actually start working toward reducing the threat to Americans posed by militant Islamic terrorism, toward actually making ourselves more safe. Who will make that possible? If the Democratic Party can't step up and do it, the people are going to have to do something because this government that we've got right now cannot do it. They've shown us that for five years. Would you guys fly tomorrow? Yes. Really? Absolutely. I wouldn't fly. I, w- I probably won't fly for another two months now. See, I- that's just because you just took a trip. So you're not really yeah. scheduled to fly for another two months anyway. No, but I'm saying like if I had a if I had a flight scheduled for tomorrow, yeah. I would I would think long and hard about canceling that. I might eat the 500 bucks at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a friend that's flying tomorrow. I was like, are you sure you still want to come? Now you gotta look. You, I mean, you know, if look, there's a specific warning that says you're in grave danger flying from Washington D.C. to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't fly. You gotta think this is the safest time to fly though, because everyone's on like high alert. Like this is the time to fly, maybe. So you know what? I'm gonna fly tomorrow. Well, I'm glad we were able to talk you out of that. <laughs> well, the internal dialogue of Jill. I, I tell you, you know, in my head, honestly, you know, I'm gonna say you should fly whenever, but I. I could see pausing for a couple of days because, and I'll tell you why, my rationale for it, I'm not sure it makes sense, but my internal rationale is this. Look, they got 24 guys. They say there's another at least five, maybe up to another oh, 26 man. people that are on the loose on this. Oh, thing. right, because there could be more than 50 involved, uh, we, we hear, we're hearing as, as possible. Obviously, many of these facts will turn out to be turn out not to be relevant, and other facts will come to play in the days and weeks ahead. And these are the people from the angry pea countries? Um, well, we think, uh, obviously, some Maybe Pakistanis. Pakistan. Uh, but, you know, they could be British citizens. I don't know. But a- anyway, there's those people, and they might think, well, we got to go now. If we're going to do it at all, we got to do it right now. Otherwise, it's going to get forth. Or they might think we got to go underground, and we certainly can't do it now. I don't know. But a week from now, I would say, all right, well, that's all gone, you know. 
It, it, look, it's I mean, no. I hear you. That that, that, that there. It's not even that, that logic that you just came up with there is is unsound. It, it is fairly sound, mm-hmm. but it just it's it is taking a it is it is taking so many facts, assuming so many facts that we can't we can't possibly know. Or they think, wait a minute, lay low until the initial thing dies down, and then in a week we go. I mean, so. But it's not going to so, die down in a week. So you know how they virtually cut off all sort of meal service on the plane now? you got to mm-hmm. pay like five or ten bucks to get like, you know, a bottle of water, a good sandwich, something. And so instead, like we go through the airport and we buy our McDonald's for two bucks instead and we have a great lunch. Are they going to change that now since we can't bring food on the plane? Are they going to start giving us food again? Uh, Treating us like normal citizens rather than cattle? They might. This might be a really good thing for people flying now. They might be, but first of all, there's the, the meals on airplanes are disgusting. I fly more than that. Yeah, but I mean, at least they would feed you before. I mean, now you got to like, beg them for a bag of peanuts. You're like, I'll give you $5. Please give me peanuts and water. I eat... But I take something on the plane you every time. You can't do that anymore now, though. Well, you can take food, I suspect. You, you can? Take, I don't know. It has happened I don't an think hour you can. ago. Dude, if you can't take a cell phone on, why can you bring an Egg McMuffin on? <laughs> because an Egg McMuffin can't trigger a bomb. Yeah. You don't know that. Who would have thought that hair gel could have triggered a bomb? Here's the deal, Jill. Well, we're certain that an Egg McMuffin can't. An Egg McMuffin causes a different kind of bomb. <laughs> um, but the, the... Poop joke from Ben. Yeah, a rare one. Uh, the... Um, uh, the thing of it is, first of all, two dollars go to McDonald's, and t- for two dollars a meal, mm-hmm. Jill has never been to an airport at McDonald's in her life. Yeah, I went with your wife and Tessa before they're, we went on the breast cancer walk. They're, I, they're, I decided to eat healthy, and I got a sausage biscuit they, with eggs. They're mm-hmm. twice as expensive as a regular McDonald's. It, okay, I don't want to devolve into a food on a plane conversation. I, I think actually those food sandwiches. on a plane. What about snakes on a plane? <laughs> Are those still legal? Can you yeah. bring those on? Only if you have Sam Jackson on the plane. Right. Can you bring snakes on a plane? All right. No. Um, by the way, the, the new sandwiches they give, especially at American Airlines, I don't care about buying them. They're delicious. I would much rather have a delicious sandwich for $5 than the crap for I will free. say the last thing about this. When Delta offered the food for purchase, mm-hmm. I, I, and I was flying first class, I would say, oh, I would say I'm not interested in, the, in this first class food. I will buy one of those sandwiches. Because uh-huh. the sandwiches are delicious. That's fine. If they want to sell us those good sandwiches, every I'll pay eight dollars for a sandwich. It's fantastic. No, it's lame. All right. We're already paying like seven hundred dollars to fly anyway. So we don't need to pay for a bad sandwich. All right, I hear you. So now uh, I think that they're taking uh, good precautions here. Let's see what happens. There's no hard and fast rules. Nobody panic. And the most important rule, whether it's you know flying today, flying a week, whatever your sort of theory is, mine, Jill's, what your own. Uh, the main thing is, don't panic. Don't be like, that's it, I'm never flying again. I won't fly for 17 straight months. Because in the, it sounds kind of goofy, but it's true. That's when the terrorists win. And what do I mean by that? See, the, the point of terrorism, I'm given to understand, is to terrorize. And so when you panic and you're like, oh, no, oh my God, I'm never going to fly again. I'm never going to see my parents in Boston. Then they've succeeded in terrorizing you, even though they didn't even blow up a single plane. So it's important tomorrow, book a flight and go to Disney World. (laughs) Because that's how the terrorists lose. That's right. In the immortal words of George. Epcot Center. We need you to go shopping.
there really was a very different way of looking at the world 60 years ago, back in 1945, 61 years ago. Uh, the There was... There truly was hope for world peace. There truly was a belief that world peace was a good and desirable thing. There truly were presidents, including Republican presidents, who believed that peace was a high value and talked about it and talked about even praying for peace in ways that weren't gratuitous. They weren't wearing, you know, Eisenhower was not wearing his religion on his sleeve. He was simply he was simply speaking the, uh, his truth. This Dwight Eisenhower from his farewell address in uh, 1960, or perhaps it was early 1961, as he was handing the reins of power over to John Kennedy and talking about the world and the possibility of peace. I mean, this, the, the man who presided over the end of the Korean War and who had been the commander, the commander-in-chief of American forces in Europe during World War II, Dwight Eisenhower. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today. Now get this, a president of the United States, keep in mind, George W. Bush running up a $9 trillion debt. We are borrowing $2 billion a day just to keep this government going. And we're borrowing much of it from China and Saudi Arabia and other countries that don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. And here is a, a president saying, please don't do that. We must resist the impulse to live only for today, said Dwight Eisenhower. Plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. You get that? We cannot mortgage the assets of our grandchildren, and yet today a child born into the United States is born with a $28,000 debt. $28,000 in debt as a result, in large part, because Ronald Reagan had this weird idea that if he ran the government into debt badly enough, this, this, in fact, the Wall Street Journal back three years ago did a piece on this thing, the, 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 the two Santa Clauses theory, that the, what the Republicans would do is they'd run the government into debt when they were in charge, and then they'd turn the government over to the, to the Democrats who would like clean, clean everything up and take care of the disaster, and in the process take the blame for raising taxes. So that the Republicans could come back in and drop taxes again and start deficit spending again and run the country deeper into debt. And then you've got the real crazies out there believing that the the Tabor crazies believing that all of this is going to lead to the reduction in size of government as if government is some kind of evil. Well, Dwight Eisenhower didn't think government was some kind of evil, and he said we must be beware of mortgaging our grandchildren's future, as he continues. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. And how, then, do we make democracy work for all, all around the world? During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Is this sound? <laughs> we must avoid becoming in a, community, a community of dreadful fear and hate. I'm telling you, the, the people who are running this government right now, the Republicans in, in charge of the House, the Senate, and the White House, the only tool they have is fear and hate. And here's a Republican president saying, 
Beware of this. Beware of people like this. And be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. And now we have a president who won't even talk. Won't even talk to Iran. Won't even talk to North Korea. Won't even talk to the, to the nations who are our potential enemies. Rose, or Eisenhower continues. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle. And, and here he offers a prayer for America. This, as he's leaving office, the Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, offering a prayer for America. Just imagine a Republican talking like this today. Confident but humble with power. Diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing aspiration. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations may have their great human needs satisfied. Are you getting this at the same time that now Bush has got a general running around going, our God is bigger than their God? Back to Eisenhower. That those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full. Uh, and, and now we have so-called conservatives who are running around saying, oh, no, if somebody doesn't, if they can't make it on a minimum wage, it's tough. They're morally deficient. That all who yearn for freedom may experience its spiritual blessings. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. You get it that this is one of the responsibilities of those who have freedom? To not be insensitive to the needs of others? To have charity? And that the scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. This Eisenhower's prayer for America and for the future, that the scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance would be removed from the world. Where are our statesmen and women? Where? Where? They're certainly not in the Republican Party any longer. I'm, I'm telling you, Dwight Eisenhower has to be rolling over in his grave. He wraps up his speech this way. Just, again, imagine a Republican today talking like this. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. Mutual respect and love. On this day, Harry Truman signed the United Nations Charter to help bring that about. One of its biggest boosters, Dwight Eisenhower. And I'm telling you, if he's, if he's looking down on John Bolton right now, he has got to be hysterical. Thanks for listening, everybody. So, my original plan, it really was to talk about the answers to the great questions of the universe, why we're all here, what, are, what motivates us, what drives us to go on. Um, you know, talk about some of the emails I've received on that topic. Uh, however, seeing as this show has run a little bit long as it is, and I'm an idiot, I have to spend the short amount of time that I have uh, making corrections from yesterday. Uh, and so yesterday, I was talking about the uh, the event that will hereafter be referred to as the quote speaking gig, 
and um and so the, it's i i was invited to uh give a, just a kind of a you know it's not a big official banquet dinner or anything you know just like a little meeting do a little uh you know give a talk on a on a topic that sort of thing and um this meeting apparently has grown to what has been referred to as a festival and so yesterday i uh, wrongly assumed that you know since originally it was a small meeting where i was being asked to speak that had then grown to a festival i thought i don't know maybe the word got passed around and for some reason, people find me that interesting, even though no one knows who I am. They just kind of got the word that like, hey, some some kid is going to come talk and that'll be fun. Um, so I thought maybe that was it. But apparently uh, I learned last night after recording the show that um, it, it's turned into uh, the type of festival where, you know, people were calling up and saying, hey, we'd like to come and have a booth we'd like to come and uh you know send our own speakers we'd like to come and send our representatives that sort of thing uh there's a rumor of a um a candidate being there uh, i'm not sure if it's uh for uh, the like the state congress or senate or 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 the US uh congress or senate well obviously not senate cuz uh, i live in california we don't have elections for senators here um but apparently there's a a new a new candidate who may be there. So when it was referred to as a festival, it was not meaning that all those people were coming to see me. But it's just, that's kind of how it panned out. So I'll be there. Uh, I'll do my thing. But there's going to be lots of other stuff going on as well. So that's the first correction. That's kind of a big one. Uh, the other one, which is, uh, well, e- equally important, but um, it should have been more obvious... And, and just goes to uh, this. This is the stupidity I was referring to. Is that I said it was going to be on? Um, I, I think I said Sunday, September the ninth, which is a day that doesn't exist in real life. So it's actually Sunday, September the tenth, that um, this event will be going on. Um, so mark that in your calendar and put an asterisk that says fact check everything Jay ever says. Um, So if you're interested in going, you live in, you know, California, centralized type area, uh, the the best description of the location that I can actually give is that it's in the Sequoia National Forest about, I, I believe it's about 40 miles northeast of Baker's, Field or Bakersville? I think it's Field because I never leave Sacramento, so I, I don't even know what's uh, outside my borders here. Um, I mean, when I leave, I I go f- much farther away than uh, Bakersfield. So you can Google Bakersfield and uh, on the map and and get a pretty good idea of of where it is. So there we go. That's my. Uh, idiot correction of the day. For more clarification and uh, details and information, uh, please just send me an email. I'll, I'll put something together. I'll, I'll, 
I'll, I'll make a page on the site and, and lay it all out. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see if there's any interest out there to begin with at least. So, uh, I'll, I'll end on that. And, uh, next week we'll talk about, uh, the mysteries of the universe. Have a good one, everybody.